and and make the case convincingly so they, they change their operation. Before I go to ambient water quality, let me talk about a few final issues that I think would be of interest to you. And obviously, I'm going to say something about Durham's lead problem. One is uh, methods of disinfection. I mentioned chlorine and how remarkable it was in the early 1900s for uh, just dramatically dropping the disease outbreaks for those things that were water, those organisms that water transmitted. Um, we also have ozone, which is used in a number of communities around the world. And we also have ultraviolet radiation. Now, UV radiation is not used that much for drinking water. But where it is used more commonly, and it certainly is used in Durham quite a bit, is the feeling that after treated wastewater, the wastewater, not the drinking water, but the wastewater, before it's discharged into the receiving water body, there used to, the common practice used to be to chlorinate it. The problem was that this would create a variety of what we call disinfection byproducts and also have other effects on the aquatic organisms in the stream or the receiving water body. So UV radiation has replaced chlorine for the most part in at the very end of the wastewater treatment plant. For example, the Durham County Wastewater Treatment Plant has UV radiation. I, I suspect both, both of Durham City's wastewater treatment plants have that as well. And it's a, it's a very good idea. Ozone is, is, is a good idea too. And it's, it's actually, uh, just as a personal note, it's what my uh, younger brother did his dissertation on at UNC. Uh, it's the um, approach used, for example, in Paris and in other major cities. Now, why wouldn't we use it here and, and elsewhere? The advantage to chlorine is that you can go out, unlike ozone and UV, is that you can go out into the distribution system, you know, the, the pipes dis distributing our drinking water to us in the community, and you can test what's called a, for a chlorine residual. And if there's a chlorine residual, that indicates there's still disinfection power in that water out in the distribution system. On the one hand, you may object to it because you know, a few hours later you may drink the water and it's, oh, this chlorine tastes terrible. On the other hand, what we have to recognize is, and, and I certainly <laughs> recognize it, when we built a house in, in, in Crowsdale Farm and we were at the end of the cul-de-sac and the only house on the street, uh, the pipes coming out, we were at the end of the end of the distribution system. And I worked on with a couple of grad students at UNC on the dissertation committees with Fran Giano, who's a very good faculty member there, who studied the Durham treatment and distribution system. And what I learned from Fran's students and from Fran is that the water, remember, the water when it leaves the treatment plant is, is tested regularly and meets the drinking water standards. But there's no assurance that when 
we turn it on the tap, that it still meets the drinking water standards. And, and uh, a couple of, well, a, a prior point on this, I was, I was at a meeting at UNC about 10 days ago, and Dan Oaken, who's a very distinguished faculty member at UNC, made the interesting point that the, distrib- the water distribution pipes are sized, oversized for the most part, but they're sized not to provide us with sufficient water if everyone's turning on the tap at the same time, taking a shower or whatever, but they're sized for fire control. So if there's a fire, you know, you'll have enough water flow that you could deal with it. So what does that mean? It means that they're oversized, substantially oversized, for non-fire uses like our uses. So the consequence of that is the water in the distribution system can just sit there for quite some time. And Dan was commenting about the fact that the new UNC, UNC North, the new campus that they're thinking of, they're they're looking to build uh, in Chapel Hill, is going to have steel distribution, water distribution pipes about an inch in diameter. With very few connections, it's just going to be able to bend the pipes. Now, I don't know what they're going to do with fires. Um, he didn't say that. Uh, but that will mean, number one, is that the water won't stay in the distribution system very long. And number two, there will be very few joints where water or other things can leak in or leak out. What we have is this oversized system with a lot of joints where water can leak in and other stuff can leak out and the water just sits there. And Fran Gigiano's student studies indicated that at certain locations in Durham, which he was studying, the water in the distribution system could be sitting there for one to two weeks after treatment. And uh, it doesn't take much to leak in before it, shall we say, cooks, particularly in the hot weather. So if... uh, you know, my inclination, I have to say, I have a, a filtration system. Ellen and I have a filtration system on our kitchen tap. And in the cold weather, when bacteria and other organisms don't go particularly well, I'm not that concerned, coupled with the fact that our, our street is now almost fully built, so a lot of people are using water. But in the summer, I'm inclined just to drink from the, from the, from the kitchen tap. And the uh, funny story was that when, when uh, we had just a house or two on our, our uh, street about 10 years ago or so, um, the water just tastes terrible. And the standard practice is when the water tastes terrible, call Durham Water Resources. I talked to Terry Rowland, and they, they open up the fire hydrant to flush out the system. Well, they came out promptly and opened up the fire hydrant, and it flooded our neighbor's yard. <laughs> so I, I never told uh, Karen exactly why her yard was, was flooded. But that's one of the downsides of that. But it, it does indeed cleanse, cleanse the system. So, yeah. Are there health issues with chlorine? Yeah, and in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, with, with a very, very short moment with, with Durham's Lead, lead problem. So, uh, on, you know, the, chlor- the plus of chlorine 
is that you can get the you can test for the residual in the system, and that's what that's what a lot of old time water quality engineers like. They like to know that there's disinfection power, particularly if the water is residing in the system for for some time. The negative um, is associated with Durham's lead problem, and basically. Um, what happened is that uh, chlorine was used um, as the disinfectant for a number of years. But the problem was it increased the level of disinfection byproducts, or trihalomethanes, which are being increasingly stringently related or, or regulated in the drinking water standard. Uh, and uh, this, is a, this is an area of expertise, particularly of Phil Singer, who heads the Drinking Water Center over at UNC. So Durham and a number of communities went to chloramines as an alternative, chloramines involving chlorine and ammonia. Less powerful in terms of ability to disinfect, but the plus was that it reduced the disinfectant byproducts so it could make Durham and other communities pass the, the requirements of the regulations on the allowable THMs or disinfection byproducts, but it increased the lead levels. So the, the problem that we've had, Washington, D.C. has had, and a number of other communities have had around the country is in switching to chloramines because EPA is, is reducing the THM standard is to have a greater problem with lead if you have lead solder or lead pipes in older areas. Now, l let me just make a, a I feel I, I should make a, a personal statement here about Durham and, and Terry Rowland. I've known Terry for 25 years, uh, and he's, I, I just think he's getting vilified in, in the press. Um, he's obviously a Distinguished, he's been away for what 160 days. He's head of the American Water Works Association. It's not a junket. It's it's probably the most important water treatment professional and research organization in the world. It doesn't take people over to China to to have two person dinners. It it funds a huge amount of research at the universities all around the world. And for Terry to be president of it is, is an acknowledgement of his accomplishments. But nonetheless, someone, and I don't know who it was because I haven't looked at it closely, someone messed up in Durham. Someone should have told those people as soon as they got the results that the lead levels were high, that their lead levels were high and made accommodation for them to have bottled water or something else. And that, that was inexcusable, inexcusable. I don't, I don't know who was responsible. The fact that Terry was away for 160 days, um, you, know, you, you know bureaucracies. I mean, someone else is in charge, and someone messed up, for sure. Uh, but, you know, knowing Terry, I, I, just, I just cannot believe he messed up. You know, they obviously didn't report this to EPA, but that's not a that's not a serious violation 
from everything I know from my colleagues at UNC, the reporting requirements are very confusing. What was inexcusable, inexcusable, was not telling those people who had the high lead levels immediately, as soon as they knew, that this is what they had, and this is... What? Oh, yes, I'm sure. I, I think there's no question they all know about it, but they should have known about it immediately. And, and that, you know, that's, that's inexcusable. And I, and I don't know who was responsible for that. But knowing Terry as a person, as a, you know, as a colleague, I just can't believe that, that you know, I, I think he was really unfairly blasted in the News and Observer. Today. So that's my, my one editorial for the evening. Yeah. I don't see the pressure between chlorine and chlorine. Uh, chlorine, um, by its nature, doesn't, um, doesn't increase the lead levels. It doesn't, it do, doesn't leach the lead out of the, the solder and the pipes. Um, but what it does do is it's, it's more aggressive in forming these disinfection byproducts of the THMs. So it's really a trade-off. You know, you violate the THM standard or you endanger people with lead. The solution, clearly, I think, is chloramines, but get the lead out of the pipes. Um, because the, you're, the, the problem with chlorine is that what, what it's doing is it, it's creating trihalomethanes, or these disinfection byproducts, associated with naturally occurring organics in the water that they just can't get rid of. They just, they just come in, they go through the distribution system, and then chlorine turns them into THMs, and they don't like the standard. So it seems to me the solution is to get the lead out of the, get the lead pipes and lead solder out as quickly as possible. And, and and use chloramines, uh, but but it's 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 not just a Durham problem. If you, if you go on Google, you'll find it in so many communities. Um, so it, it's 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 a problem for all of us. But it's just you know it's, it, none of us would want none of us would want to have that known and not reported, and and that's just absolutely inexcusable. And, and I honestly don't know who was. Who was responsible for that? Okay, water distribution systems. I pretty much covered that, I guess, already. Telling you about the, just be wary. You know, I don't know. How, there's no way of knowing where you live, how much time the water resides in the distribution system before you drink it. Um, and, and then, frankly, I, I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an advocate of these. Uh, Brita water filters and, and the things you can put under your sink um, from Culligan and so on. But what's interesting is that the nose and the taste are remarkably good at detecting a, a variety of these contaminants. They're, they're, you know, in some ways, they're as good as the, as the techniques we have in the lab. So any other questions about drinking water? I think I'm switching topics now. Well, just a yeah. you know, remote, not really related to the, the natural drinking water, but a lot of people's drinking water today comes in bottles and they buy oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's all kinds of, you know, you hear about, well, if it's just on a truck and it gets 
hot and when it, when it gets cold and when it gets hot and when it's plastic bottles yeah. versus yeah. you know soft plastic bottles right. versus hard plastic bottles versus glass and what are your thoughts on all that? I I I, I my knowledge is limited on this, but from what I hear from talking to colleagues is that there are cer there's certain the generally associated hard plastic is that, that the plastic from the hard plastic um, and there are certain types that are fairly well known does, does not leach very much into the drinking into the bottle of water and but you know my inclination is to is to get one of those hard plastic bottles and take it out of the tap. Uh, unless you're in an area where you're, you're really suspicious of the water. And then the bottle of water from a soft plastic bottle is, is fine. And of course, outside the U.S., uh, I think the U.S. has the best drinking water in the world. The EU has, has very good water too. And it's, obviously, it's the underdeveloped countries that are having problems drinking. Water adequately, and that's where bottled water is. Uh, but the tap water uh, in one of those Nalgene type bottles, I think, is a is a, is, is, is a good choice. Generally, bottled water is regulated by the FDA. Tap water is regulated by the EPA. Regulations aren't that much different, uh, but but the soft plastic can reach into the into the water in a pipe. That's more. Yeah. So. Yeah. My question on the water distribution system. Since the water in, the water in pipes is under pressure, is it a pretty unusual situation where you think it leak into the pipe? No, the pipes are, uh, because they're so big, um, it, you know, it's not as if the pipes are, are, are always you know, completely full. Uh, you're right, they're under pressure. You've got the You've got the water tower up here, and it's, it's forcing it's forcing the pressure. But that doesn't change the fact that things things leak in and things leak out. Well, and, if, well how can it leak in if there's pressure in the pipe? Yes. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I can understand if you had something outside that caused water to be under pressure. If you had a flood or something that can't feed the water over the pipe, that might give higher pressure outside and inside. Well, of course, it, 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 it depends on it depends on the demand and the distribution system, but it 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 it, it does leak in. Now, and you're right; it, it has to it has to imply a pressure differential, or or possibly some sort of a a fault in the in the connections or cracks or something like that. And uh, and uh, I can't remember the last time I've seen a water utility person out checking our our pipes for our distribution system. Right. Every time I throw on the water, it always comes out. Oh, yes. And for the most part, it does. Yeah, that's right. I've never seen an example, I guess, it did, which would mean there was no pressure. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there, there is pressure. But that doesn't mean that some of the pressure is associated with something leaking in and, and, providing, and providing additional water. It, 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 without question, there, there are leakages in both directions. Uh, but, but your point is a good one. 
that you'd expect that the, the water pressure would be very high. And, and indeed it is. When, the, when they turn on the fire hydrant, the water just pours out substantially. But that doesn't mean that, you know, that some of the water coming in is associated with a, um, you know, a, a, a loose connection associated with a pipe joint or, or a crack in the distribution system. But it, your point is your point is well taken. It's not it's not as if the you know the water is sitting there at this low level and there's there's a, a vacant space above it. The, the pressure the pressure is such that. It it goes both ways. No, no, I I I I I understand your point, but it it goes both ways. And it can go both ways associated with with usage. Um, If the the usage is such that uh, it's drawing water, there's no reason why it's not going to draw water or microorganisms. It doesn't have to draw very much in the way of microorganisms to create contamination. I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a flow of 100 gallons or 10 gallons or even 5 gallons. But if, if there's a if there's if there's a uh, a crack, you just have to have a little bit leaking in to provide the opportunity for uh, for bacterial regrowth. Yeah. You talked about the dramatic uh, decrease in cholera and so on with chlorine leaking. Have you looked at evidence about fluoridation of water and what that's done to health? That's an interesting point because fluoride is regulated in the drinking water standards, and there's a there's a narrow level at which, um, as I recall, that, that it's considered safe. Um, there's a narrow level that is preferred for the purpose of dental decay, and above and below, it's undesirable, uh, and actually has, I think, above, I think it has detrimental. <clears throat> and, and, and below, I think, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of innocuous. So there's this narrow level. It's one of the few, con- few contaminants that is often added to drinking water at a certain level to maintain it within the range, uh, but not exceed the range where, where you run into problems. Below the range, I don't think... As I recall, you don't run into problems, but you don't get the beneficial effects of fluoridation. Okay, now I'm going to talk about areas that uh, topics that I'm a bit more involved in with research, and this involves uh, surface water quality. And it's interesting to think of, to, to recognize that um, early water quality management, and this is Roman cities, but we're, we're not just talking about Roman cities, we're talking about uh, European cities and American cities up until the 1600s, 1700s, is that for the most part, what they had when, with, with regards to Surface water. Now, you know, we're talking about not talking about drinking water anymore. We're talking about surface water associated with rainfall and runoff. Is that they had uh, drainage systems with a purpose? The primary purpose was to get the water out of the 
the dense or populated or urbanized areas as quickly as possible. Get it out as quickly as possible. So this is an old storm drain in Roman times, and there were obviously more efficient uh, systems, gutters, and so forth. Uh, but this, notably, this didn't deal with wastewater from houses, businesses, and so forth. Those were mainly uh, outhouses, privies, and so on, which, uh, which were led to the deposition of waste directly into the surface water body. And again, the objective here was the water puddling or being retained in an urban area was a nuisance. So channel it out as rapidly as possible. And you can see these, um, you can see these drains right here and here. And in, in, in other, in more modern times, they were just simply gutters in the, in the street. Now, that didn't prevent people from putting sewage and other, uh, other sorts of things in these drains, but for the most part, they were stormwater drains and, and not dealing with domestic human waste. What was going on in the middle? <laughs> No, uh, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know. It does look like a filtration system, but I don't think it is. I don't know. They never explained this in, in this uh, picture I got from this uh, website. It does. It looks like a pretty nice filtration system, doesn't it? And also the uneven steps, too. So... Um, So it's, it's, it's important to recognize that, that that's, um, that, that was the primary issue with regards to urban ambient surface water, rain-generated runoff, uh, was the focus on stormwater. And in densely populated areas, in urban areas, there was much less concern about human waste and sewage and so on. Uh, it was accepted that it could be put in, in, these, in these drains, but it, uh, in some cases it was, it was prohibited. Now, one of the key things that changed this situation was the fact that um, in, at a point in the 1800s, the water closet was invented and water into the home became more common, and so there was a great deal of water to dispose of. And so at that point, what, what happened, and this would be late 1800s in the United States and in Western Europe, uh, the municipalities began to construct what they called combined sewers, where the sewers took out both the storm water, this water right here, as well as the wastewater. But as I mentioned before, when I said man can live without recreation but not without work, the treatment at the end of the pipe uh, for wastewater tended to lag significantly the treatment for drinking water. So the feeling was that the receiving water body was, was part of the wastewater treatment system, if not the entirety of the wastewater treatment system.
Now, this had a, an unexpected and dramatic change with the Refuse Act of 1899 in the United States. I'm going to focus on the United States. Um, in that this act, which was focused on um, facilitating navigation of boats in navigable waters, prohibited the discharge of wastewater into a navigable water without a permit. And that was, that was remarkable, but it was largely ignored until um, oh, probably 40, 50 years when uh, the core, when, when organizations recognized this provision in the act and insisted that the discharges of wastewater to navigable waters get a permit. So the Corps of Engineers hastily set up a permit system, basically permit to pollute and what could be put into the pollution, but that languished and never really emerged as something serious until this point, which we'll get to shortly. 1972 Clean Water Act, which is what we're under now. Instead, what we ended up having was, was the Water Pollution Control Act of 1948, a series of amendments. The interesting thing about the 1948 Water Pollution Control Act is that in Congress, there were a group of congressmen and senators very much in favor of water pollution control improvements. And they wanted aggressive action. They lost. This act, 1948 Water Pollution Control Act, was written by and published or uh, passed by those who didn't want aggressive controls. So they wrote an act that had very little teeth to it. And so basically, 48... 56 and even 65 to some degree, the act had very little in the way of federal regulation, federal control, and continued to, uh, in effect, allow states to attract industry even when it degraded water quality. 